By the way, I'm going to make you very envious because I've got this. Oh, what? <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> to have my afternoon coffee. If I knew I was going to come up to Amsterdam this month, I'd have uh, brought back a pack for you, but um, I'm afraid. Oh, enjoy it. <laughs> and I'm very jealous. <laughs> It's Friday, May the 5th, Liberation Day, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darroch, Dutch News contributing editor and sunshine correspondent, and with me today is Robin Pascoe, editor of Dutch News and phantom flag fiddler. But first, we should probably tackle the only question that really matters to our listeners, where is Paul? Indeed, where is Paul? Yes, apparently he's uh, in sunnier climes. He's um, down in Spain, in Seville, I see, taking lots of photographs of uh, flowers and floral gardens. I think he's lucky he wasn't there last week when it was 40 degree heat. I think it's cooled down a little, but uh, yeah, enjoying the sunshine. Oh, good for him. Mind you, it's sunny here. We can't complain either. It is finally sunny here, yes. Yeah, I think probably the the weather curse has worked in reverse because uh, regular listeners who tuned into Paul and Shen last week will have heard Shen complaining that I was writing lots of stuff about the weather uh, and how terrible it had been this year, particularly how we hadn't reached 20 degrees uh, this year at all, which is the first time that we haven't had 20 degrees in the first four months of the year since, I think, 1997 or something. And it looked as if we were going to have to wait until the second half of this month. And then all of a sudden, this week, the forecasts turned. And yesterday, we actually got up to, well, in The Hague, it was 21 degrees even. The giddy heights of 21 degrees. It was lovely. It was sunny. It was dry. And there was no wind. It was just a really nice spring day. I've been checking out what it all means, you know, what a warm day is and what a summer day is and what yeah. a tropical day is. And it's very bizarre. I mean, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've now had, because it, it reached 20.2 Celsius in De Bilt, which is near Utrecht, we've had our first official warm day of the year. Yeah, hopefully the first of many. But um, I look back over the records for this, for the story, and I think in the last three years, we've only had one warm day in April, which is unusual, especially over a sustained period. Global warming for you. Global warming for you. And yet, this has been one of the warmest starts to the year on record. We had 15 degrees on January the 1st, which is ridiculous. And January and February were so warm that actually the whole first four months of the year were the 10th warmest on record, even though we haven't had a single 20-degree day. Good for your energy bills then, I would have thought. Yeah. Also one of the wettest years on record as well. So, so hopefully not so many problems with drought this year as we had last year. But yeah, the sun's out, so we should all be cheering. Absolutely. And something else we're cheering, Robin, is that it's uh, May the 5th, so it's Liberation Day, um, which means that everybody traditionally hangs out the national flag. But you've had quite an adventure actually trying to track down your flag, I understand. Yes, it, it was sort of um, hidden. Um, well, hidden. I hadn't a clue where it was, actually, to be quite honest. And, and we've got one of those cupboards that, that you don't really want to know what's going on in the back of, you know. So uh, yeah. Well, Scots call a glory hole, right? That's so. very true. They do indeed. Well, I ended up sort of getting a ladder and moving a few things, including a box with a dead caiman in it, which was a bit strange. Um, hmm. uh, I think that's something we've had for a very long time, one of our shameful... Um, animal trophies. I don't quite know why we have it. Uh, But I found it right at the very back, which was great. Uh, I pulled it out eventually, moving a few things. And then I found that I didn't have the proper clip to make it half mast. Oh dear. And um, can you believe you buy a flagpole here and you buy a flag and you have to pay extra to get a clip for half masts. Do you? (laughs) I'm sure when I bought my flagpole, it came... It was a complimentary clip. Oh, you probably so, got a, a got a posher version than us. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I had to buy a replacement flagpole last year because you know when your children pass their exams, you hang the school bag on the end to celebrate yeah. the fact they pass their exams. So we did that, but unfortunately, um, I forgot to take the books out of the bag, and then it rained, and that weighed the bag down. And it snapped the flagpole. No, so I had to. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I hope he still passed the exams. That didn't sort he of He still happen. passed the exams, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't disqualified <laughs> Excellent. for having a broken flagpole. Excellent. And now you've got a better quality metal one or something. Yes, exactly. A much better quality, better quality wood pole. But was your flag that had been sitting at the back of your cupboard still in pristine condition? Because I always like the fact that all the flags in the streets are very clean and perfectly straight. Well, it, it was totally, because we only bought it um, very recently, because we bought oh, it right. to celebrate 75 years 
of the end of the war because we felt that we should do something to mark that. Um, we've never had one before. And ours is the only flag in our street, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah my street was absolutely full of flags, so yeah. I don't know You're in a nice says. bit of The Hague. I'm in a kind of bit of Amsterdam where it's it's changed so enormously since I've lived here. There used to be loads. I mean, I have to say there were lots, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're the last ones now. Oh, so you're literally flying the flag. We are. For- the Netherlands, yeah. And I hear as well, I've heard on the grapevine that there are kind of um, seditious plans afoot to fly the flag of a foreign power from your flagpole uh, at the beginning of next week for a certain event when uh, a foreign monarch has to take his throne. Is this true? Yeah, it's been mentioned. I have pointed yeah. out to the people who are planning to do this, it's not allowed. The, the, the traitors. The traitors, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you'll keep me a very close eye on this because... Um, We'll be doing that thing. And if we were flying any flag, it would be the Salter. Excellent. That's what I like to hear. We have some Ukrainian-themed OPEF this week, appropriately enough, because uh, there's quite a strong Ukrainian theme throughout uh, this week's news. But the OPEF of the week was that the police stopped a man driving through Kronia with a fake driving license that was made out in the name of Boris Johnson. It might have been plausible, but for the fact that the license was issued in Ukraine and uh, it was in uh, Cyrillic script and contained some fairly obvious clues that perhaps it wasn't quite the genuine article. Even though I have to say the Boris Johnson in the photograph looked exactly, exactly like the real one. So if that really was what the driver looked like, then uh, yeah, he must have fancied his chances of getting off. But the license had an expiry date of December the 31st, 3000. Um, and in the field where the signature was supposed to go, it said, good evening, we're from Ukraine, which is apparently what the Ukrainian army like to say when they chance upon some Russian soldiers. And it's actually also the title of a popular song. So basically, these licenses are a gimmick. They're a tourist thing. They're sold in tourist shops around Ukraine and Kiev. It makes you wonder why he thought he could get away with it. Was he particularly <laughs> very drunk then? Yeah, I think he must have been. Yeah. Anyway, the, the police weren't fooled, they said. Uh, so absolutely no flies on them. Uh, they said they confiscated the document. The driver was, in fact, a 35-year-old man from Zadhorn and uh, yeah uh, th- these licenses are freely available in tourist shops in Kiev uh, you can get them in the name of, of Volodymyr Zelensky the president of Ukraine apparently there are even ones in the name of Vladimir Putin although apparently I've heard they're not selling so well these days but the police when they were asked said Boris Johnson the real Boris Johnson had not been in Kronia and most definitely had not been seen at any parties there unlike Obama Unlike Obama, yeah, because Obama's been in Amsterdam this week he seems to have been everywhere having a lot of meals apparently Yes, uh, going on a boat trip. He went on an uh, electric-powered boat around the canals, I saw. That's right. We had a Dutch News trip on an electric boat. Was it the same one? Different company. Different Different company. company. Okay. But yes, he went on a boat tour. He tucked into a goat's cheese salad. Uh, at a restaurant uh, in Amsterdam called uh, 1612 and just seemed, generally seems to have had a very nice time and then gave a speech for the Obama Foundation one of these you know very expensive per ticket yeah. dinners fundraising dinners where he said uh, to people in Amsterdam you have a beautiful city and you should treasure it which I think was a lovely sentiment it was I, I like the fact that it cost 2,750 euros for this exclusive dinner with him where you could have your selfie you know a selfie taken and all these people from these restaurants and cafes and both were just putting pictures of their selfies with him online and saying, didn't cost us a penny. <laughs> that was a very Dutch touch, I thought, yeah. So that was uh, Barack Obama, the former US president uh, in Amsterdam. This week, uh, we also had the president of Ukraine make a flying visit uh, not to Amsterdam, but to The Hague, to the delight of most but not all Dutch MPs. Dozens of local councils are criticised for turning a blind eye to the mistreatment of Holocaust survivors. A treasure trove of old newspapers brought the liberation of the Netherlands to life. And if you want to take the car to Scheveningen this summer, you'd better have deep pockets. The Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, was in The Hague this week for a whistle-stop tour that took in the Senate, the World Forum, a royal palace and the International Criminal Court. But he didn't go on the wheel in Scheveningen, so he needs to come back and do that sometime as well. (laughs) His visit on May the 4th was a closely guarded secret. Uh, The 150 people who attended his speech in the World Forum only got their invitations at the last minute. But the cat was let out of the bag the day before, and a lot of the credit for that has to go to Menos Fat, who's a journalist who specialises in tracking official government planes. And he spotted that the PHGov aircraft was flying to Warsaw and assumed it was taking a minister to Kiev. But then 
It flew on to Helsinki, where Zelensky was visiting yesterday, and since no Dutch government officials were going to Finland, the only logical reason for doing that was to pick him up. So the rumours started to fly around Twitter, and they were fairly substantial rumours, mainly because Svart has form for this kind of thing. He was the person who noticed the royal family slipping off to Greece during lockdown, which caused a pile of uphef and ended up with the king and queen issuing a very humble apology on television. And sure enough, it turned out that uh, at 10 o'clock on Wednesday night, a cavalcade of uh, vehicles uh, came to Schiphol Airport to pick up Vladimir Zelensky and the, it was confirmed that he was in the Netherlands. So well done to Menosvart for breaking the story. Absolutely. I, I can remember watching and thinking, is this true? Is this really going to happen? I mean, it all seems yeah. so last minute and normally you get loads of warning. But I mean, so what was he up to? What was he doing? The Hague labels itself the city of peace and justice and that was very much the theme of his visit. He started off at the International Criminal Court uh, but obviously that is a highly symbolic visit. Uh, the ICC issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin recently for war crimes in Ukraine. Then Zelensky went on to the World Forum, where he gave a speech called No Peace Without Justice for Ukraine, where he made a plea for a special tribunal to try Russia's leaders. Of course, we all want to see a different Vladimir here. In The Hague, he quipped, which triggered an indictment for joke theft from our own Molly Quell, who said something very similar on Twitter the night before. Zelensky urged the nations of the world not to get bogged down in legal procedures or to make excuses for not bringing those responsible for the war to justice. He said defeating the impunity of aggressors means destroying their means of aggression. And after that, he addressed members of both Houses of Parliament in a special session of the Senate, where his focus was on the battlefield. He thanked the Netherlands for the €1 billion Euros worth of weapons that have been supplied in the last year. But he also said more would be needed, and he asked for support as well for his country's efforts to join NATO. Then he met Mark Rutte and the Belgian Prime Minister, Alexander de Croo, in the Katz House, where he talked about uh, the need for Ukraine to have F-16 fighter jets, which is the latest in the kind of running series of uh, sticking points in terms of uh, military spending. Rutte said he was in talks with Belgium, Denmark and the UK to try to resolve the issue, as they had to do with things like the Leopard tanks, where eventually, uh, after lots and lots of discussion, negotiation and countries dragging their feet, they agreed to send them. After that, Zelensky had a photo call with King Willem Alexander, a Palestine boss, and a visit to the military base in Susterberg, where, among other things, he met some wounded Ukrainian soldiers who were being treated there. And then he was back on the government plane at Schiphol, tracked again by Manosvart at 6.15, which was just as the official commemoration of the war dead got underway in Amsterdam. So a pretty breathless tour of uh, The Hague there for the President of Ukraine. Unbelievable and all packed in, you know, uh, so neatly as well. It was yeah. uh, extraordinary. I like the fact as well that he stayed in the Marriott Hotel. There were other guests in the hotel that night and none of them knew until the next morning. And they said, oh, wow, he's in our hotel. But also the Marriott Hotel, of course, is a place where recently, a couple of years ago, two Russian spies were busted while they were trying to hack into the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons, which is just next door. And there was that dramatic scene in the lift where the Russians came down the lift, the doors opened, and the Dutch security services were there waiting to meet them with open arms. So I imagine he probably got a little tour of the hotel in that incident uh, during his stay. I hope they pointed it out to him. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. I'm sure he made a point of going up and down the same lift. Yeah, yeah. I saw there were quite a few of the Ukrainians in the Netherlands had turned out to kind of wave and welcome him. But I don't think not everybody was happy about him being here, especially on, on the 4th of May. Well, yes, yeah, some Dutch politicians did query that. Most of them were, and he got a standing ovation when he went to the Senate, but some party leaders stayed away, saying it wasn't appropriate. To nobody's surprise, Thierry Baudet, uh, he was out of the country, conveniently. He's always out of the country. He is always out of the country. He's very rarely in Parliament, certainly. Um, Wiebe von Hacher also turned down the invitation, as did Geert Wilders, who, of course, infamously visited Moscow a few years ago and wore a friendship pin to express his support for Russia. So, yeah, a lot of the usual suspects, but perhaps a little more surprisingly, Caroline van der Plas of the BBB, the Farmers' Party, also elected to boycott his visit. She said May the 4th should be reserved for the Dutch victims of war. And that caused a huge amount of op on social media, uh, particularly several people, including a certain Balpe, pointed out that the dead in Ukraine included 196 Dutch citizens who were on board flight MH17. Because, of course, that plane was shot down over the Donbass region in 2014, right at the start of the war, although in those days we didn't recognise it as the war, but it was shot down by Russian-backed separatists who had been convicted of the crime in the Dutch courts. And that meant the Netherlands had lost more civilians in Ukraine than any other country apart from Ukraine. And it was something Zelensky noted in his speech to the World Forum when he asked for a minute's silence for the victims of the war, including the MH17 passengers. Gosh, yeah. 
Very inappropriate comments, I think, from uh, Caroline von der Plus there. It, it betrays a kind of lack of understanding about what May the 4th is all about, I would say. Somebody made exactly that point on a talk show, I think, said uh, that uh, she seemed, didn't really seem to understand what, what liberation was about or what war was about. And of course, he'd left the country before the actual Dotodenking uh, ceremony got going. Yeah, and I think uh, the Dutch are very specific about that, making sure, because officially, I only learnt this yesterday, Dordenherdenki doesn't begin until six o'clock in the evening. And of course, Zelensky was on the plane out of the country. Well, he left at quarter past six, so he was on the, he was on the tarmac, but he, he his visit had finished. So it didn't clash, and I think that was done quite deliberately to preserve the integrity of the Dordenherdenki ceremony. The main ceremony, of course, is in Dam Square, and that always revolves around the traditional two-minute silence at eight o'clock. Uh, King Willem Alexander and Queen Maxima laid a wreath at the war memorial and after that relatives of various groups of victims of the war including resistance fighters and the military followed suit there were similar ceremonies in towns and villages and cities all the way up and down the country for the most part they were impeccably observed although in Breda a drunk man was arrested for disrupting the ceremony and in Osflielant the playing of the last post was cut short when a cat took exception to the bugle playing and viciously attacked the player poor old Ninka Hoekstra who actually uh, got scratch marks and uh, was left bleeding and couldn't finish the last few notes, which was rather sad. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, uh, yeah, one mustn't laugh. It's a, it's a solemn and serious occasion. But there's something very impressive about just seeing thousands of people just standing still and doing nothing for a couple of minutes all at once. I don't know what it is, but I, I agree. I mean, I, I went to the dam last year. Actually, I didn't go this year. Um, I'd never been before, and. There were sort of tourists pushing their way through the crowd saying, let me through. And, you know, they were nearly lynched, basically. But, you mm-hmm. know, the, the people who were watching were so angered by this. But it is, you know, you see sort of always shots on social media of newspaper boys, you know, getting off their bikes and standing there. And it's the way the buses stop and the trains stop. Um, yeah. It's extraordinary. And and I also think, I don't know whether it's because I'm getting older, but the two minutes seems to get shorter every year. I don't know. Maybe that is just you, Robin. But um, yeah, it's, and then they switch off the traffic lights as well because, you know, the traffic lights usually click for the ah, blind and they actually switch amazing. them off for two minutes so they don't make any noise. I mean, it is an extraordinary moment, I think. Yeah. yeah. So officially, Udodon Hedenkin commemorates the victims of all wars since 1940, but in practice, it's always dominated by the Second World War, understandably. Uh, the ceremony in Amsterdam always features a speech that focuses on one victim or one group of victims or a particular story. And this year, I thought it was a very powerful speech by 17-year-old uh, Luvana Weiss from Enschede. And she told the story of how her Sinti family were taken away and killed by the Nazis and how basically she didn't know the story for a long time because it just wasn't spoken about. The Sinti and Roma peoples are often called the forgotten victims of the Holocaust. Around half a million were murdered in death camps. Luvana described how she hadn't been told how her grandfather and his family, who were circus performers, were made to wear brown triangles rather than yellow stars to identify themselves. They had to actually make them and sew them onto their clothing themselves. And then they were eventually rounded up and taken off to Auschwitz. And it was, yeah, I think everyone agreed it was really powerful stuff. Yeah, she was amazing and so poised and uh, um, clear for a, you know, a 17-year-old speaking to millions of people. I always think it's really commendable the stories they choose to tell at the ceremony. It's always a uh, they often kind of shed a light on, uh, on 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 an aspect of the war and the Holocaust that doesn't receive so much attention as other stories. No, absolutely, absolutely. It is. It's amazing how much still keeps coming out. And of course, you know, today it's Liberation Day, so it's the flags are on full mast, or however you say it, and. It's sunshine and it's parties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a complete contrast in mood. And the Liberation Day fires have been lit in uh, the traditional ceremonies that marks the end of German occupation. Uh, they always begin in Wageningen in Gelderland, which is where the Germans signed the capitulation order on May the 5th, 1945. Although, of course, the whole country didn't capitulate on May the 5th. And there were some rather ugly street skirmishes in Amsterdam. But uh, yeah, generally speaking, that's the day that is marked as Liberation Day. This year, the flame was lit just after midnight by a 96-year-old British veteran, Mary Scott, who was accompanied by the town's mayor, Floor Vermeulen, and uh, around 1,500 veterans from the Netherlands and other countries will take part in the midday ceremony. And then the flame gets taken by relay to 14 other towns and cities that are holding festivals around the country. We've got a full list of locations on the Dutch News website if you're interested.
The festival's also been struggling financially in recent years. Uh, Utrecht was on the brink of cancelling its event this year for the first time in 30 years, but uh, they managed to rustle up some funding at the last minute to keep going. So that's good news. But uh, yeah, a lot of the festivals say they need more funding from their local council, their province. They just don't get enough. Uh, They're they're organised independently by the local 4th and 5th of May committees. um, And they say that they need more structural funding, basically. Several locations have also joined in a more recent tradition of uh, freedom meals, which are kind of baked big community nosh-ups basically and there's even a special recipe for freedom soup on the menu which we'll link to on our website as well i looked at the recipe um are there spices in it yeah it's quite a spicy (laughs) one this year oh is it right okay oh they change the recipe every year yeah 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 and they invite a chef to come up with their their own version apparently the first year you could buy them you could buy it in ready-made in tins and they were sort of sold out as collector's items everywhere it was a brilliant memorabilia if you like you know, we were just talking about the fact that at the speeches, uh, at the Dodohodenking, that they talk about bits of the war that you don't realise. And of course, you know, there's always things coming out. One of the things which the Netherlands is still coming to terms with is is how it treated the Jews who came back, who survived yes. the camps. And this year, current affairs show Pointer decided to find out just how many of the Netherlands, 365, or is it 364? I can never remember. It keeps coming um, down. I know, so, I know. Yeah. Mergers and acquisitions, yeah. if you like. But um, no, they, they looked to see how many of the local authorities had actually tried to find out what had happened to the Jewish property in the aftermath of the war. In total, 218 council areas were home to Jewish people whose property was taken, confiscated and sold on by the Nazis or taken over by others after the Jews, their Jewish owners were deported. But apparently 53 of them are refusing to investigate their own role. Some of them going so far as to argue that no appeals to return the properties have been made, Mm. which is hardly surprising when you consider that only 35,000 of the country's Jewish population of 140,000 survived the war and 102,000 of the 107 who were deported to the death camps were killed and never came back. Yeah, exactly. As you say, I mean, those who did come back, uh, either they found other people living in the house and they weren't allowed to uh, go back in, or sometimes they were even actually charged tax for the period that they were, they owned the property, but they were they were being detained in, yeah. a, in, in a death oh, that, camp. It I mean, was just is, shocking. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd. That I mean, it's a real scandal, and it's still unfolding. It, it, it's hard to believe, but councils were, you know, all but welcoming to citizens who tried to reclaim their property. You know, yeah, yeah. as you say, some wanted them to pay tax. Property tax, or even I, I read somewhere some people who'd owned a car had been had to pay road tax for the time that they'd either been in hiding or in a camp. And 25 councils were involved in buying real estate from the Germans themselves and obstructed attempts by their owners to get it back. Yeah, it's quite mind-boggling. Yeah, and, and of course, some uh, places, including The Hague, I have to say, you know, um, the, the, the had had Nazi-sympathising mayors who organised all this and then either, you know, and then after the war, either just have hid the records or just uh, obstructed any efforts for restitution. And yeah, a lot of it is still going on. I have to say in The Hague that a lot of the work to put this right uh, has been led by uh, the Pfefe, another party that we often give good publicity to, but actually they, they've been instrumental in, in raising uh, awareness of uh, the, the fact that many homeowners in the city are still waiting for compensation for the way they were treated by the city council in the years after the war. It's, yeah, I looked it up to see what the big cities had actually come up with. And it it said that they've paid compensation of 14.6 million now Mm. to individuals and Jewish organisations to compensate them for the bills that they had to pay. And Utrecht says it's been unable to establish if it charged death camp survivors property taxes But, you know, it said uh, in 2020 that it's clear the city adopted a business-like and inhospitable approach to them when they came back. And of course, in 2020, it took until 2020 for the Dutch Protestant Church to admit it helped sow the seeds of anti-Semitism and failed to protect the country's Jews before, during and after the Second World War. 
Yeah. It's already an ongoing thing, and it's just bizarre that this is uh, you know, still going on 80 years after the end of the war. And, of course, it's not just local authorities that are at fault either. So. No, 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 not <laughs> at all. I mean, a Dutch railway company, NS, it, they say it earned £2.5 in today's money for transporting Jews to the death camps. And, uh, in fact, in 2019, it set up a special fund to compensate the victims and the direct relatives of victims and 7,600 people applied for the compensation. You would get 15,000. That was if you were one of the 500 direct survivors. 7,500 for a widower, a widower, or 5,000 for uh, children. Mm. And of course, you know, on top of that, we've still got the campaign for the return of art and antiques to their rightful owners. And that's still going on. I mean, every year, one, two, I think last year, there were eight or nine pieces of silver or paintings are given back to relatives who can prove that the item was either stolen or involuntary sold. Yeah, the Netherlands is one of the few countries where they actually weigh up the interests of keeping the painting in the country for cultural reasons with the interests of the family. Well, I think there are there are moves now to change those rules, but there's no absolute right of restitution, which is a real sore point as well. Yeah. Oh no, and that's why some of these cases go on for years and yeah. years and years. Yeah, it's terrible, really. Brussels has given the green light to the Dutch government's buyout scheme for farmers who have to give up their businesses under the plan to cut nitrogen compound emissions. The scheme will compensate livestock farmers who voluntarily close their farms near Natura 2000 conservation zones, where European rules and Dutch law require the government to cut emissions by half by 2035, although the current government wants to achieve this by 2030, although there's now a row about whether that should be pushed back. But anyway... The EU said the plan was appropriate and proportionate and contributed to EU Green Deal objectives. Competition Commissioner Margrethe Verstager said it would improve the environment and promote more sustainable production without unduly distorting competition. That last point was key because the government was concerned that the scheme could be challenged on the grounds that it was anti-competitive or that the farmers might use their payments to set up shop in another EU country which would uh, conflict with the rules on direct state aid. Farming organisations have welcomed the decision which paves the way for Christiane van der Waal to go ahead with her wildly attractive compensation plan for farmers but they stress that all buyouts must be voluntary. It sounds good. I mean, is this good news for nature, Natura, and zones? Or well, not? that is. But in general, it's not such good news for them because the provincial government's plans, uh, which are supposed to guarantee biodiversity, don't go anything like far enough. Uh, that's uh, the outcome of an analysis that was carried out on behalf of NOS. Now, the 12 provinces are supposed to submit details of their measures to protect the conservation zones, which include which farms need to be closed by July the 1st. Only five provinces have done so so far. They are Nord-Holland, Nord-Brabant, Overijssel, Utrecht and Limburg. The reports show that the nature zones are in a bad way. They are damaged by drought and by invasive species, uh, and measures like planting more trees and restoring streams will only be enough to meet European standards in 14% of areas, while in 65% it will definitely not be enough. Also in three quarters of the areas, nitrogen compound emissions will continue to be a problem, and the reports also say exotic invasive species like cranberries, chokeberry and swamp stonecrop, as well as the American crayfish, which has apparently become a persistent pest, are crowding out local flora and fauna. And in Limburg, drought is a problem in 60% of areas. Ironically, given the floods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe that uh, is going to be less of a problem now that we've had a bit more rainfall this winter. Who knows? If the situation isn't remedied, the Dutch risk breaching another EU rule that says the situation in designated areas must not be allowed to get any worse. Gordon, I've got a question about this, hmm. which is, what are we trying to restore back to? I've never really understood... I mean, Dutch nature is artificial by its very nature, if you see what I mean. I mean, are we trying to get back to what they look like in 1820 or 1940? Or what are we trying to do exactly? It's a really good question, isn't it? Because the Dutch landscape, like you say, is entirely manicured, manufactured. I think, I think there's a, the last indigenous forest was like chopped down sometime in the mid-19th century or something. So this is more to do with like promoting biodiversity. If you look at, if you go around the countryside, or and I, I know Geert um, Mack is 
very good on this, who wrote a book about the village where, where he used to live in Friesland, uh, that uh, things like this grass species, there's, I mean, almost all f- um, uh, meadows now uh, have, have one uniform type of grass, whereas, you know, 50 years ago, there were you know, there were hundreds of different different species. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's Everything's become much more, even more uniform. It looks quite uniform when you walk about, but it's, it, it, the actual diversity of species has progressively got worse, mainly because of intensive industrial farming, I think. Yeah. It's always made me curious, you know, because I know that when I go out for a walk with, with Luke, you know, my husband in the dunes, and, and he goes, when I was a little boy here, there was no grass here. It was just sand. Mm. And of course, now there's grass and there's trees. I've always found it very interesting. But, you know, that sort of nature's always manipulated by people, isn't it? I mean, if you think about, you know, the deer that we introduced here and then Indeed, have gone yeah. wild. <laughs> the rich species we let roam around uh, around the failure and the fact that we now decide that we, we're going to let the wolves back in and you know which which species of horse we we, we, um, yeah. we reintroduce. Yeah, it is, we have- it is to an unusually high degree, I guess, the nature nature and landscape in the Netherlands is, is man-made. But on, I think what they look at, they look at kind of, you know, whether the, you know, there's enough diversity of species to uh, to maintain a healthy balance. I saw a really good clip of a nature ranger in North Brabant a few weeks ago where he just literally walked around the forest and he just pushed over trees and they've just been killed because one of the things that nitrogen does is it encourages a few species at the expense of everything else and particularly some species of nettles and then they grow out of the ground and they basically just starve the trees of nutrients and the trees all die and they're standing there dead. So that sort of thing is what they're trying to fix, okay. I think. Makes a lot of sense, of course. I mean, you know, it needs to be done. Otherwise, we will have problems. But I mean, the wolves are a problem, of course, as we've just said. But, you know, there was other farming related op-hef on May the 4th as well. There was indeed. As you and I know, the entire country has been festooned for the last years. um, And the flags have been hung the wrong way up. Uh, The farmers say this is a distress signal to remind people that the government has brought them to their knees, even though an upside down flag is not, in fact, an internationally recognised distress call in any way. But everybody's kind of rolled with it anyway. Uh, However, veterans groups asked the farmers to turn the flags the right way up for May the 4th, because that's when it's flown to remember the war dead. But farmers activists like Farmers Defence Force said, nah, too much bother. Some farmers have hundreds of flags in their fields, some even have thousands, and Mark van den Ufer, the chairman of the FDF, who said some very dodgy things about the Holocaust in the past as well, said it was too much effort to turn them around for one day. So, not going to do it. Well, the nutcase in our street, the whoppy in our street, who has an upside-down flag flying all the time, he didn't bring it in, but he did tie it up around the flagpole so it couldn't fly. All right, okay. But we put my flag out anyway. You put your flag. Yeah, I put my I put my flag out as well. Actually, my my son put the flag out. He was very um particular about marking the the national day of uh, remembrance. So good for him. Greta Hunebeek, whose son Henry died on duty in Mali seven years ago, said upside down flags distressed her because her son came home with a flag on his coffin. And even Caroline van der Plas, there she is again, leader of the Bebe Bay, took up the cause. She said farmers were efficient and resourceful, and she was confident they could find a way to turn their flags around, or even if they couldn't do that or couldn't bring themselves to do that they could take them down for May the 4th suggestive respect. But Saita von Kempemer of FDF defended the farmer's constitutional right to fly the flag, she called it, and she said uh, it's not possible for the farmers to turn the flags around for one day, that would show we're not recognising their problems. Yeah, what can you say? Yeah, apparently the distress of farmers who are going to be paid millions to give up farming is greater than the distress of people who were killed and murdered and taken away by the Nazis. So they seem to think. At Dutch News, we always proudly fly our flags the right way up as we steer the good ship of news through the murky, congested waters of Dutch society and politics. But it does all cost us time and money, time in particular to cover and research these stories to keep you up to speed on what's going on. And we do rely on the donations of our generous patrons because without your support, this podcast wouldn't be sustainable. You can become a patron for as little as a euro, a dollar or a pound a day and all our new patrons are rewarded with a shout out, the chance to ask us a question and access to our exclusive bonus content. This week we have a clutch of new patrons to thank, partly because I went away last week and forgot to leave the details with Paul. So thank you to our patrons from last week and thank you and apologies to those who signed up the week before and have had to wait until Liberation Day for their shout out. So we say thanks to uh, Jay Tinkle to Alex Nye, to uh, Sergios Petridis, Kevin Esslinger, and to Colin Wilson. So 
Very many thanks to all of you for all your support. We hope you continue to enjoy the podcast and do feel free to drop us a line if you've got any particular questions. If anyone else would like to join our select band of Stickstuff Crisis veterans and podcast patrons, log on to www.patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. We were saying earlier about the fact that war stories always emerge at this time of year. And of course, Dutch News has a story of its own. And uh, I have to admit, I've been sitting on it to wait for this minute because, uh, yeah, you want things to be topical. But um, it all boils down to an old archive cabinet, which I bought in a secondhand shop. It was a real mess when we got it. So we took it to be restored. And when we went to pick it up, the restorers handed us over a faded green file full of newspapers dating from May 1945, all issued around the time of the liberation. Just astonishing. This so often happens. You hear these stories that people just stumble across these old archives, um, in your case, in a piece of furniture. So what did you find when you opened it up? Well, there are about 30 newspapers uh, and other bits. Some were newspapers that no longer exist. There's a hand-printed newsletter from a local sports club. There's some Nazi propaganda and uh, even an A4 sheet called The Liberator, which was issued to welcome the troops who liberated Amsterdam. In a way, I think that's the most extraordinary item because amid all that turmoil, somebody thought about making an English language document with a little history of the Netherlands, the words of the national anthem and, you know, where to find the churches. It's ironic that uh, Amsterdam City Council these days seems to be less inclined to produce information in English than the liberation fighters were back in the day, right? Exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, yeah, no, I mean, that goes without saying Amsterdam. I don't know what it's doing with its... Uh, its attitude to foreigners and voting, but that's, that's another story. Yeah. But um, it is, you know, but this was, I loved it. I mean, it, it not only was it sort of giving you serious information, it also had this sort of tongue in cheek apology for the poor welcome that the liberated troops were given. It, it, it said, for example, excuse us when it's raining so much these days, but we want to clean the air that is infected by the bad smell of the Germans during the past five years. Mm. You know, it, it's just sort of just bizarre. But I mean, the newspapers themselves had all sorts of snippets of information. I mean, the Wahrheids report on the arrival of the Allied troops writes about the delight of being given the first English cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it quotes a Canadian officer who described the rapturous uh, welcome they received as making him feel like Bing Crosby. And uh, the parole from May the 9th talks about how the Dutch Nazi leader Musset asked to be allowed to finish his plate of strawberries before being arrested, and uh, they let him finish them as well. <laughs> that was very decent of them, wasn't it? Yeah, I think kind of um, uh, similarities here in the kind of tongue-in-cheek apologies to the soldiers is kind of similar to the, you know, the the way that Ukrainians use a lot of humour as well during the war. That kind of wartime humour, you know, the things like they posted an, a mock-up image of a of a train uh, going from was it going from Moscow to the Hague for one passenger and that kind of thing. You know, so the, the, it's almost like sort of the memes of its day of their day. These newspapers, aren't they? I suppose, like a, yeah. And you had to, yeah. I mean, I suppose you had to laugh really in a way I mean there's yeah. one of the publications is is different though to the rest and it's called The Hill and that was Nazi propaganda and it's mm. a satirical magazine The Hill The Scream and it, it says in English at the top this is all basically fake news it says this is satire none of these people are alive and then the headline on it is um, don't worry uh, the Abyssinian liberators are coming and it, it's got this horrible racist photograph of a black guy. And it mm. says, you know, it's basically saying Eisenhower's telling you Dutch, you're fine. The liberators are coming. And it's it's a really kind of nasty, nasty thing. And it really always kind of makes me think of the the way here far right parties will go. Oh, no, no, we were only joking. We were only joking when they've said something hideous. Um yeah, awful, that kind of, yeah. sort of punching down humour. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you mentioned a parole. And uh, in fact, I think your story's made it into a parole today, this week. It did, it did, yes. So the Dutch, uh, yeah, Dutch readers can uh, read all about it. They can indeed, they can yeah. indeed. Yeah, they actually talked yeah. to the people who restored the cupboard as well, which was nice. And they got, I found oh, other things good. as well, apparently. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, have you actually been able to find out where these documents came from? No, I haven't. Not really. I mean, the people in the secondhand mm. shop think it came from a house on the Beethoven which was being cleared out. But um, they didn't really tell me anymore. And I didn't really like to push them because, you know, I didn't want to embarrass them into giving up, you know, confidential, privacy sensitive stuff. Um, I know that nobody knew it was there because there's a sort of secret compartment at the bottom of the cabinet. Um 
And I just, I don't really know what to do with them. I mean, the city archives don't want them. They've got enough old papers. But I think they should go somewhere where people can actually read them. You know, it, it's not just the history. It's all the little details. And, you know, as time goes by, fewer and fewer people are alive who, you know, went through the horrors of World War II. So, you know, it's important that the story's kept alive and these papers sort of bring it back to you in a really vivid way. Absolutely, yeah. They actually remind you of how people lived through it at the time. For us, it's something in history books, but at the time, it's something people really experienced. But uh, there is a campaign, an on-running, an ongoing campaign for people to, to donate wartime material and documentation to museums. Do you know about this? No, it's, I don't uh, actually. It's called Axi Axi Nitvechoin, and twice a year on May the third, so we just missed that one, but also August fifteenth, which is the official end of the war in Europe or the, the, the Europe and the, and, and the Pacific. There is like a day when you can they, they appeal for people to to gather up any war documentation they have and donate it to war museums and there's actually an, a form on their website page we'll put a link to it in the line notes anyone else who maybe has got war memorabilia or documents uh, lying around at home or in their attics uh, can do this and you can go onto their website which is in Dutch it's axienietvechoin.nl and uh, you can fill in a form and see if a local museum is willing to pick up your stuff I've actually got a suitcase which belongs to a friend of mine whose father was in the resistance and he was one of the original resistance members because the Dutch resistance in the beginning at the start of the war was mainly the communist party it was dominated by Dutch communists and he was a Dutch communist and uh, he, he had a suitcase full of various documents including as well his, 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 his resistance beret but also a fascinating little booklet that he picked up on a day that was called Dollar Dinsdag Dollar Dinsdag was a day in the autumn of 1944 when uh, a message went round the Netherlands was about to be liberated and lots of people came out of hiding and then of course it, liberation didn't happen some people had to go back into hiding some people were caught by the Nazis by the occupation Germans and, uh, and, and, and killed or taken away but he was in these kind of the days of chaos when no one knew what was happening and some Germans did actually flee their posts he broke into a government building in The Hague and he found a booklet which was actually a, a list like a catalogue of all the people that Durban's were looking for and he found his own name in it and he realised, I've got to get out of here. So he hightailed it out of the Netherlands and went and fought with the British for the rest of the war. So, And it's a really fascinating little thing. It's a, a list of thousands of names, and it gives names, where people live, um, what they're being sought for, so what crimes they're alleged to have committed, and, and their gender and a few other details as well. It's really interesting. It doesn't include the Franks by any chance, does it? I have to go back and look at it again. I mean, you see, it's a good, sort of decent size, decent thickness booklet. I've always wanted to take the time to actually go through and catalogue it and see if we can find these people. I mean, there, there's one, there's a name in it, which is actually the surname of my, my wife's family from their village. So somebody who's a relative, and I think my father-in-law knows who it is. I don't think he was aware that he was actually in the resistance, but um, suddenly found his name in his booklet as somebody the Germans were looking for as a suspected you know, extraordinary, terrorist, in their words. Extraordinary yeah, yeah. that these things are still, you know, emerging and, and coming out, you know. Well, I mean, if anybody listening has got an idea for the newspapers, get in touch, please do. And um, I'm also very happy if anybody has a parent or grandparent who was among the Canadian liberators who'd like a photograph of the liberator, mm. just let me know and I'll, uh, I'll uh, email you one because... Uh, uh, several people have already asked me because they said, oh, my granddad was there. Could I see it? Because he probably had it in his hands. So. Oh, wow. But I'm happy to send it across. Sports news now. And uh, much as I try not to make this section all about football, this week it really was all about football because it was a cup final day on Sunday. And I have to say it was about as entertaining as a traffic jam on the Afslaut deck. Did you watch it, Robin? I know your sons are big Ajax fans. so No, I, I, I have the joy of being able to hear it from the, the sports cafe on the corner. So I know what's do. going on, basically, just by the cheers or lack of them. Uh, I guess there was a distinct lack of cheers for most of the match. Because, uh, yeah, it was, it was a pretty dreadful spectacle. Ajax didn't manage to manage a single shot on target during the whole match. But they still took the lead at the end of the first half, thanks to an own goal. PSV then equalised with about the only good move when Savvy Simons picked out Torgan Azard in the penalty area. It was a pretty scrappy, bad-tempered game. It was punctuated by yellow cards. Uh, the referee booked 10 players altogether, including both team captains. And so a dreadful match kind of petered out uh, and was decided by an abject penalty shootout. Um, they missed five of the spot kicks, so it was a pretty standard Dutch penalty shootout, really. Edson Alvarez of Mexico struck the fifth penalty for Ajax with all the conviction of a three-year-old kicking a 
football for the first time. It kind of trickled towards PSV goalkeeper Joel Drommel, and that gave Fabio Silva, who's on loan from Wolverhampton Wanderers, the chance to win the cup for PSV, which he duly did with probably the best penalty of the series. Oh, good Lord. Ajax. Ajax. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you mentioned my my son. He blames it all on Edwin from the Saar, but, uh, you know, what what's going on? What's next? Yeah, they're kind of crumbling, aren't they? So it's not happy times um, at the Johan Cruyff Arena. It's been a very disappointing season for what is the biggest and the richest club in the Eredivisie. They're on course to finish outside the top two for the first time since 2010. Uh, that's because they've also lost 3-0 to PSV in the league the week before the cup final. In fact, they lost four times to PSV this season now because they also lost uh, at home in the league and they lost uh, the Johan Cruyff's Hall, which is like the pre-season opener. Alfred Schroeder was sacked as coach at the end of January following a run of seven matches without a win. Uh, he was replaced by John Heitinger, who's a former Ajax defender and a fan's favourite on an interim basis, but Heitinger is now facing questions about whether he'll still be in the manager's chair after this season. At the weekend, he said he was getting sick of being asked about his future, and he trusted the board to make the right decision. He also admitted this team hadn't practised penalties before the cup final, which I guess he's regretting now, but he said there was no point because it's a lottery. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're still there. Yeah, I never understand why football managers say that they say you can't practice the atmosphere of the penalty shootout but all you can practice is kicking the ball into the net from the penalty spot which is kind of the important bit yeah certainly really. if you end up doing it like a three-year-old i mean uh, god yeah. yeah and and so the other the big three Feyenoord gearing up to celebrate the league title yeah, I don't think anything can stop them now, really. And I think their fans, who are always a bit pessimistic about their chances, because um, they haven't had an easy time the last few years either, they are finally starting to believe. I think Ari Slot's team are eight points ahead of PSV, so they can afford to lose two of their last four matches, and all their remaining opponents are in the bottom half of the table, including the mighty FC Emmen. The supporters club, Defiant Order, launched a crowdfunding campaign this week to finance the championship celebrations, which has already raised €100,000. The money will be spent on painting murals and a giant banner. Uh, the last time they won the league in 2017, they draped a 128-metre-long banner that weighed 900 tonnes over the Shell building in Rotterdam. And this year, they have vowed to make one that's even bigger. It's kind of like the, you know, the Frochtefuren on Scheveningen and Dandorp in The Hague. Every year it has to be bigger yeah. and hotter and more yeah, until until it goes too far. So we'll see. Maybe this year they'll bring down the Shell building with the, with the, with the weight of their banner. Well, Shell have left the country anyway. So. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Final could win the title this weekend if PSV slip up against Sparta, and Final can then win the derby match at Excelsior. So it's all happening in Rotterdam, of course, because yeah. Sparta and Excelsior are also Rotterdam-based teams. And it's also worth saying that Cambria, Leovarden, and Groningen will both be relegated if they don't win their matches. But frankly, it's just a matter of time. That would cut the North out, though. Yeah, well, Emin is still there. Oh yeah. And Hirafein. Oh, of course. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The capitals, <laughs> the provincial capitals would be gone. Yeah. Well, we've just had the first uh, 20 Celsius uh, plus day of the year, so it seems that summer might be with us finally, which means I might finally get my beach swim. I didn't have very many last year, actually. but um, yeah, Neither did I. Yeah, I'm yeah, looking forward to that. It, uh, and uh, But I, I noticed that the good folks of The Hague and, uh, importantly, the seaside resort of Scheveninger, have raised their city centre parking fees to a flat rate of 50 euros, even for a 10-minute trip to the shops or a 10-minute swim, basically. I mean, I mm. think the idea, they say, is to free up space for the locals. and They hope by making on-street parking extremely expensive, it will force visitors to use car parks, leaving more room for the permit holders. The experiment will last for a year and initially apply in around 20 streets in the centre of The Hague at around Scheveninger Boulevard, which is the bit along the seafront, just to warn you all. Uh, last year, the council raised hourly parking charges from 350 to €10 Euros an hour in an attempt to persuade people to switch to public transport. But clearly that wasn't enough because the locals were still griping that they couldn't find anywhere to park their cars. So, yeah, how have they responded to this plan? Well, according to Marika de Jong from the Oud Centrum Residents Association, most locals back the plan. They say you can't park anywhere. You have to wait for someone to get in their car and leave. But some local businesses, as always, are worried that the measure will be bad for trade. Fleur Kraut, who runs a liquor store on the Langer Basin marked in the city centre, told Omroop West, it won't make doing business easier if people are going out of the door with a box that weighs 10 kilos. 
Um, I have to say I was in Schrevinger last week to visit the very worthwhile Henry Moore exhibition at Bilder and Zee. And when I saw the news about the car parking, when we got home, we rushed to check how much we'd paid. Um, we were actually in the car park and it cost us 35 euros for 3.5 hours. So uh, that was the old fees. And that's even more mm. expensive than in Amsterdam. That's absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And I thought the whole point was to encourage car drivers to, to use the car parks rather than park on the street. But even the car parks are ridiculously expensive well absolutely uh, i mean yeah. we had no idea I mean, we had a lovely day it was it was great but mm. i mean it's the same everywhere isn't it i mean we we spend hours driving around looking for somewhere to park in amsterdam yeah. and, and you know as residents we pay a fixed fee per month and it's really annoying when the car places are all full of you know cars with german or polish number plates uh, because people have taken your spaces or people from out of town But would I spend 50 euros to park anywhere in The Hague? Um, no. Actually, they're building a really hideous new car park outside the main drag. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it. it looks, yeah, I've seen it, yes. Yeah, I know the one you mean, yeah. It looks like a World War II bunker at the moment. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the architect's drawing, it looks a bit more attractive. But, you know, there are some really ugly buildings in Schaveninger. You know, I, I had a nice day. Mm. It was sunny, but my God, there's some hideous stuff yeah, that they've the, got. The, so some of the seafront flats, they go on about how they're going to pull them down and replace them, but uh, they never seem to get around to it. One of them looks like the Balmabaya's prison. I'm sure it's the same architect. Yeah. yeah, a lot of them do sort of have, have a very sort of strong 1960s Eastern European communist state vibe. Yeah, They certainly do. And Zandvoort, actually, to be honest, is even worse. I mean, there's nothing redeeming about the Zandvoort seafront at all, I would think. I mean, I've since discovered, though, that I always used to think that it was 70s developers that were knocking everything down and building up this, you know, horrible stuff. But actually, I've discovered that much of old Zandvoort and the other resorts were demolished by the Nazis during the war to make way for the Atlantic Wall, yeah. which I guess brings us full circle, really. Yeah, yeah, no, they're, 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 they're not done a huge amount of buildings. Actually, in my neighbourhood, even though I live, you know, half a mile from the beach, they knocked down a whole strip of land just north of where I live to build the, like the tank trenches that were behind the Atlantic Vols. They had a second line defence, and after the war, the, these were filled in. They're now quite a nice sort of little sort of nature area called the uh, Royal Krasplanzun. That uh, yeah, and on the on the side of it, you have more 1950s, but slightly more attractive 1950s flats. But yeah the, the, yeah, the damage the Nazis did and the amount of demolition work they did to neighbourhoods that only just been built. I mean, that, that area of the Hague, my house is exactly 100 years old. And that area of the Hague had only just been developed in the sort of 20 years before the, the invasion. And then the Nazis knocked it all down so they could drive their tanks about. <laughs> you come across bits of it in the, in the strangest places. We were walking in the dunes one day and, and we came across this huge stretch of Atlantic Wall. Just there. Yeah. there were, they weren't bunkers. I mean, there are thousands of bunkers. You kind of get used to those. But And it had somebody had written Berlin on it, which was kind of interesting at the time. I think it was sort of almost the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall or something, if we want to get yeah. back to more anniversaries. But uh, I mean, there are traces of war everywhere in the country, everywhere. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, uh, especially details of uh, how you can hand in your war documentation if you have any. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl and if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a shout out and the chance to ask us a question. My thanks to Robin Pascoe, I'm Gordon Darroch and I'll be back as usual with Paul next week. Thank you.